Today's episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Sure Payroll. If you're a small business owner, you know payroll and payroll taxes can be a headache. Sure Payroll has changed that by simplifying payroll services with just three easy steps, and it's entirely online. To learn more, visit surepayroll.com/fool and get a free quote. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. He's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Year Retirement Newsletter. That is true. Hi, Allison. Hi. Uh, as promised, it's an all mailbag episode, so we're going to tackle your questions about paying off debt versus investing, sources for seed money, Social Security, all things 401k, and whether you should invest in Star Wars. Sort of. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Today, we're going to get some help from Sean Gates. You may know him as a certified financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. I know him as Robert Brokamp's biggest competition in the race to the bottom. <laughs> because you listeners, in a good way. Now, the listeners have no clue how much audio hits the cutting room floor when you two are in the studio together. It's not the only thing that hits the floor. I should point out that Sean... <laughs> See, I don't even know what you meant by that, but I know it was inappropriate. <laughs> Sean is the first person I ever hired in my professional life, so that explains a lot. But also the only, so that also explains <laughs> quite a bit. Like, one, of, one of the few. Certainly one of the few. Yeah, and we're stuck with you now. All right, well, let's just get into the questions, shall we? Let's do that. All right, first one comes to us from John in Pennsylvania. I recently received a lump sum of money, and I'm wondering what the best thing to do with it would be, aside from mailing it to us. Of course. Motley Fool 2000 Duke Street, fourth floor, <laughs> Alexandria, Virginia 22314. Uh, John writes, my wife and I already have our emergency fund in place and are maxed out on our workplace retirement contributions and IRAs. We nice. also don't have any credit card debt. Wow. Gold stars. Yeah. We are debating whether to pay down some of our debt or invest the money. Our current debts are a mortgage at 3.375% and two cars, one at 2.49 and one at 2.99. I know that investing the money would give us the chance to earn a higher rate than our debts charge in interest, but I also like the idea of getting a guaranteed return by paying off some debt. Thanks so much, and I love the podcast. All right, what should John do? Well, the first thing to do is look at the interest rates on the debt. Given what he has said about his financial circumstances, I'm going to assume that he can deduct his mortgage interest which then says that maybe the, the, there's some value to keeping that debt. That it, the, the rates are very low, so you'd think long-term you'd be able to invest that money and exceed the rates of that interest. That said, there is psychological benefit to paying off debt. And I was in this same situation recently. We got some money and we decided to pay off a car loan. But then what we have decided to do is the money that was going each month to the car loan is now going to go to our kids' 529. So we paid off the debt, but then we're using that as a way to put some more money in savings as well. Yeah, and I think it's a case-by-case basis, but there's also studies that show that if you have a sort of a cash cushion, you're more happy. And so maybe having that money set aside in a retirement account or an investable account, just knowing it's there rather than locked up in a mortgage or in a car payment is helpful. And so there's just a lot of different ways to look at it, but I think investing it, especially if you're young, is a good way to go, but you're never offbeat if you pay down debt. Right. Wrote it. Right. If you were to base it just on long-term historical numbers, <clears throat> yeah. you'd, you'd have a higher net worth by investing that money and keeping the debt. The debt is crazy low. 
I don't expect the stock market to return that that mythic 10% annually a year over the long term, but you'd still probably have more money by investing it. That said, if you feel better by paying off the debt, that's not a bad idea. Okay. Next question comes from Dan. Dan writes, My wife and I are 36 and 37 and currently set aside money in both of our Roth IRAs and 401ks. I'm interested in investing in a business idea with some friends, commercial real estate, but it is four to five years off. I'll need some seed money for the investment, but I don't want to miss out on socking away money in either my 401k or Roth. I know I can withdraw my Roth contribution, I meet the five-year rule, but would a self-directed IRA be a viable option? What do I need to know about a self-directed IRA, and is there a reputable firm equivalent to Vanguard in that space?" So, A couple of things about this. First of all, as he points out, the money you put into a Roth IRA, you can actually take out tax and penalty-free anytime. And for that, you don't even have to worry about the so-called five-year rule for the Roth. So he can put that money in and take it out anytime he wants. Now he has used a term called the self-directed IRA. A lot of people think if I have my own IRA and I'm just picking my own stocks and bonds or whatever, that's self-directed. In a sense, it is, but that's actually an actual term related to a special type of IRA that allows you to invest in other things like real estate, some businesses, um, all kinds of crazy stuff, and the average broker, like Vanguard, and they actually don't allow you to do it. So you have to go find a specific type of custodian. It usually has higher expenses, and there are a lot of rules about it. So like you can't use this money to buy a vacation house that you eventually stay in. You have to invest in some sort of business that you don't have any personal use of. And now, Sean, as in your history of being a financial advisor, you actually have dealt with this. Yeah, I've run into this a couple times, and it's usually people who come to a financial advisor and say, hey, I got into this investment idea, and now I don't know how to get out of it. And so, they're stuck, because a self-directed IRA, like Bro said, you're only limited to a few organizations. Equity Trust is one, I think the Millennial Trust is another, so, so it's usually trust companies. They do the annual reporting for you, but that's about it. So, so there's a whole another uh, stack of documents and, and compliance that you need to keep up on, and it's not always clear whether the trust company is doing that for you. Sounds messy. It's pretty messy. And then in this case, you know, if you if you go into a limited liability corporation, or I've seen equestrian, like people invest in horses for horse racing, oh, you can pretty yeah. much do anything you want. I've seen people buy interests in parking lot meters and things like that. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, you can invest in all sorts of wonky things. And it's just when then you need to go utilize that money, it's very difficult to get it back out. You know, you don't know when the term ends. How do you get back out of horses or this business if this business succeeds? Do you literally have succeeds? to sell the, also sell the horse in right. addition piece to piece, getting out of the it? Sell the horse, yes. You wow. just end up for the rest of your days riding the horse and horse races. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. Actually, not really. You actually can't do that, right? Because that's <laughs> personal use. And if you use the thing you invested in, that it could be considered distribution, and then you pay taxes and penalties. So there are lots of rules around it. Philosophically, I think it's a great idea, especially if you have already other big accounts that have stocks and bonds. This is a way to diversify your portfolio. You just have to be very careful about it. And generally, these things are not very liquid. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, we don't want to make it sound like it's all bad because, as Bro said, the diversification element is great. And you can find some pretty sweet deals that you can't otherwise get. The stock market might get you 7 8%. Some private deals could get you 20%, 25%. I'm not trying to say that all do, but if you marry up with the right partner, it could be a great investment. Yeah. So to answer Dan, I would I would say your best bet is actually to put the money in the Roth, 
with the eye of taking out the contributions, that's probably going to be an easier thing to do. But definitely look into self-directed IRAs, and it might be suitable for you. Yeah. I just realized I am not diversified at all into racing ponies. <laughs> That'll be our next episode. <laughs> well, here's a question that's in a similar vein. This question comes to us from Peter. Peter writes, I'm a 24-year-old tech worker, and my dream is to retire when I'm in my mid-40s and start an esports bar one day. And he wants to know which option he should pursue. So. He's basically saying that he, I'm summarizing this a bit, he contributes uh, to his 401k up to the company match, uh, and he also maxes out his Roth IRA. But what he's wondering is if he should put the ex- an extra 360000 per year into non-retirement accounts, or if he should put that money against his capital of a 4% mortgage. So, he says, what are the best options if I want to start a bar? Are there any accounts that you can pull money out tax-free if you start a small business? So, this is an interesting question. The one thing I would say when you are starting a business, when you pay off your loan, you lose a certain amount of liquidity, right? Um, you've taken all this money that you had in a brokerage account, you paid off your loan, but now you don't have that money. If you're going to be starting a business, it would seem to me like having that liquidity is pretty important. He's pretty, he's young, he's thinking long term in terms of when he's actually going to need that money. So you'd think over the long term, he could earn a return that's higher than his current mortgage. So I would lean toward keeping the mortgage and then investing the money. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, and you're a brother of a different mother, I think, because I have similar goals. <laughs> I don't have the eSports thing down, but I... Oh, what yeah. do you want to open up? Well, I just want to be a bum and <laughs> travel the just world. Just do nothing. Yeah, do okay. nothing. But, yeah, so, yeah, bro's point is spot on in terms of loss of liquidity. It's it. I would say it's very clear that in this case, you would want to save that money in a taxable brokerage account on the side and invest that money for this future goal. One of the things that he's clearly worried about is if you take the money out of your retirement accounts before you're age 59 and a half, you could pay taxes and a 10% penalty. But there are actually many ways to get around that. It can be for a qualified first-time home purchase. It could be for qualified higher education expenses. These are different, by the way, if it's a 401k or an IRA, so you got to know the rules. But there's also something called substantially equal periodic payments, which is very complicated. Look into it, though, but it is a way for people who are younger than 59 and a half to get money out of their retirement accounts and not pay that penalty. Yeah, and I think a lot of people get trapped in trying to figure out what type of account to save in. You know, a 529 is for education, a 401k you max out for the match, and that's for retirement. What is, is there a business account? When there is just a brokerage account, which is a catch all, and it's available at any time, and it's a great resource to go to and if you have extra money save there because you know as you said it's liquid and there are no penalties associated with it when trying to get it out for the goal that you haven't associated with it if it's for education it has to you have to pull it out for education this account can be for anything and so it's a good yeah. place to say. you just want to watch the tax consequences of what you invest in yeah. maybe favor stocks that don't pay dividends over the stocks that do don't do a lot of day trading or short term trading but buy a good solid company that doesn't pay a dividend that you could hold on to for many years and you basically don't pay any taxes until you sell yep well, hey, let's uh, let's pause for a moment and thank our sponsors. This week, it's the smart problem solvers over at Sure Payroll. If you're a small business owner, you know that payroll can be a huge, expensive pain. Enter Sure Payroll. They've made it easy and affordable to manage your small business payroll online, so you could focus on your business instead of worrying about late fees and fines and all that taxes stuff. Their customers include a range of businesses such as dental offices, insurance agents, restaurants, barbershops, charitable foundations, tech startups, and more. Just go to surepayroll.com/fool to get a free quote. 
Now let's head back to the mailbag. All right, next question comes from Cheryl. I started collecting Social Security retirement benefits early because I needed the money. My pay just wasn't enough. When I turn 65 this year, does my Social Security benefit automatically go up because I'm full age? So she's talking about what is known as the full retirement age. It used to be 65. Then it has moved up to age 66 for anyone born between 1943 and 1954. And then for other folks, it gradually moves up to 67 for anyone born 1960 or later. So she's actually not reaching full retirement age. She might be confusing with Medicare. So Medicare is available to anyone who's 65, regardless of when you were born. But the answer to her question is no, because she took Social Security early. When you take it early, you basically have locked in a lower benefit. So it's not going to go up. It might go up if she's earning enough money to have the benefit adjusted. And what I mean by that is your Social Security benefit is based on your 35 years of in which you earned the most money. If she's still working now and her last year's income was among those highest 35 years, it can adjust her benefit upward in the following year. But that's the only way that'll be adjusted. Yeah, there's the only other thing is you can really put your money on the COLA or the cost of living adjustment. That has been virtually zero the last couple of years. Um, if it makes you feel any better, I probably won't be able to claim Social Security until I'm 75, so I can commiserate is with that, you a little Is bit. that your projection for where the, the <laughs> yeah. age will be by the time yeah. you get there? That's correct. Yes, yeah, so I, I would definitely say that it, certainly younger folks in your, in your 30s, right? Yep. Yeah, should probably expect the retirement age to go up by the time they get there. All right, another Social Security question, this time from Stan. My ex-wife is drawing Social Security benefits at the age of 60. Am I eligible to draw a spousal benefit off of her earnings and continue to let my Social Security build? We were married 27 years, been divorced 10 years, have not remarried. So here are the requirements to get Social Security based on the record of an ex-spouse. So first of all, you have to be unmarried. You can't have been remarried. Check. Um, You are age 62 or older. Uh, Your ex-spouse is entitled to Social Security retirement based on either retirement or disability. Um, And the benefit you are entitled to, and this is the tricky part, from the ex-spouse would be higher than what you'd get on your own. But that actually depends on your age. So what he's talking about is is something that changed very recently so that not everyone can take advantage of it. If our fine fellow here was born before January 2nd, 1954, he can do that. He can, at his full retirement age, claim the benefit as a divorced spouse, let his benefit grow to age 70. If he was born after January 2nd, 1954, that no longer applies. You can no longer do that if you are not old enough. One thing this demonstrates is how complicated all this is. So, what I almost always recommend that people do is find a good online tool that will take your information and and give you a good answer based on your own numbers. And a few of those are, first of all, Social Security Administration website has tools like that. There's also something called SS Analyze from Bedrock Capital. ARP has a Social Security calculator, and Financial Engines also has one. And those are all free. There are other ones that are also very good that you can pay just like $50 for, and it's probably worth the money. And they can sort of crunch all of these rules together and give you some solid advice. Next question comes to us from Warren in Alexandria. Hey, just down the road somewhere. My former employer has temporarily offered me the opportunity to receive a 43000 essentially, lump sum payoff now instead of a pension that is projected to pay me about 
$550 per month starting in September of 2029. I do enjoy managing my family's accounts, but recall you saying on the podcast that the retirees with the most guaranteed incomes are the happiest. I am wondering about why I got this offer in the first place. Is the pension fund shaky? Am I better off simply keeping the pension, which is a single life annuity, or taking the lump sum? Well, first of all, anyone who's going to get this sort of classic defined benefit pension should stay on top of their plan, and, and every plan has an annual report. It'll give the funding status. So he can look into that and get an idea of whether this is happening because the plan is underfunded. There's also something called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, PBGC, that also has some of that information. To really do the analysis for his question, if I were him, I would, I would run some numbers, and I'll give you an example here, and he would run various scenarios. But let's say, if he earned 5% a year, his $43,000 or so could grow to about $82,000 in 2029. If he had that amount of money now and bought an immediate annuity, it would pay him about $450 a month. And I found that from immediateannuities.com. You can get a quote. So just looking at that, those numbers, and it looks like actually keeping his pension would result in a bigger payout, as long as the pension is safe and it's going to be there in the future. That said, if he gets this money now, he does have freedom with it. He can use it now if he wants to. It'll be transferred from the pension into an IRA, so there will be some rules about how he can access it. So, um, and you know, if he earns higher than five percent, it actually might end up benefiting him more by delaying it. Yeah, I think the only perspective I would add here is that the only modifier to the calculations that Bro did that you want to consider. Is what does that 500 and change monthly benefit do to your income tax bracket? Because a lot of the times you don't necessarily account for how an increased retirement income might affect your retirement tax bracket. Whereas if you take the lump sum and invest it, you you know you could potentially stretch that out further. So there's a there's another layer on taxes that you could look at. But a lot of the times there's actually a great study that came out where they showed that the typical person who has the option to take a lump sum would require almost a 9% rate of return annualized to achieve the same benefit that they would get on a monthly basis from the pension corporation. I don't want that to be you know, kind of a, a static that people use to not take a lump sum, because sometimes that makes sense, right. but it's difficult to recreate that pension. And you're taking the risk on yourself, whereas if you leave the pension and just take the income, that risk of investing it to provide that benefit is on the company. You don't have to take on that risk. So what what to talk a little bit more about pensions though, when he talks about is the pension fund shaky, is that like a serious concern? Like do, do pension funds go belly up all the time and then people who are counting on them just get nothing in retirement? Well, that's what the PBGC does. It it is an insurance basically. It's sort of like the FDIC for yeah. pensions. Um, and it'll pay that. The problem is there's a limit on how much you'll get, although it looks like, the, based on the amount he's giving here, he's below that limit. But also, the PBGC is severely underfunded. Yeah. So that's going to be another problem coming down the road when a lot of pensions do fail, because a lot are really are severely underfunded. Um, that's a real question about what will happen in the future. So um, my answer for him is if he's, if he's a solid investor and he he appreciates having more control over the money, go ahead and take the lump sum. If not, you'll, and, the, and the pension is on solid ground, it might be better to leave it. Yeah, and I think we, we do this sort of analysis for clients all the time, 
And it is surprising at how many pensions are underfunded. The, mm. the, the stat that the PBGC itself is underfunded sort of goes to speak to yeah. how often these companies are going. Because the, the PBGC is actually funded by more or less premiums that the pension companies pay to backstop that fund. It's not a federal organization funded by federal dollars. It's run by the federal government, but it's funded by premiums mostly from the pension companies themselves. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, there's a lot of them. Normally they're like 80% funded at best. Um, so it just gives you a sense of how how severely underfunded some of these can be. The state of Illinois, I think, is at like 65% Jeez. funded. Yeah, it's, it's really one of those things that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it can be a huge issue down the road because Illinois is an example. We've heard about Detroit and other places too with severely underfunded pensions. And what's going to happen? Either those folks either are not going to have the money they were counting on or taxes have to raise significantly. A lot of people are going to be like, you're raising my taxes to pay for these people who are retired? It's going to be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question comes from, they're just going by the name Jester. Uh, I kind of, I don't know how I feel about <laughs> reading this word for word. I think you got to, you know, that's the way our audience feels about you. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Oh, great goddess Allison and fellow Allison worshiper bro. Well, let's not go too far here. I beseech thee for thine wisdom. I am but a poor, humble, dollar-cost averaging investor. Investor, I know that if I'm not beating the market, then I'm better off just buying an index fund. But I'm not sure how to calculate my returns. If I invest $1,000 and I make 10%, then I have $1,100. Yay! By the way, that's his yay, not my yay. <laughs> I know I'm prone to saying yay and things while I'm reading these An letters, but that's distinction. His. All is well until next month when I deposit $900. Now my account is worth 2000 only 100 of which is profit, so my return drops to 5%. No! <laughs> he, wrote, I, he wrote that too. <laughs> I know the market hasn't passed me by when all I did was deposit more money, right? How do I calculate my actual return on investment when I'm beefing up my account at regular intervals and amounts? Thanks, and stay foolish. This is actually a pretty complicated question, and it's a very good question, because you want to know your actual returns and not just based on the money put in. A different problem uh, was was made very popular by the Beardstown ladies. I was going to say, are you going to talk about the Beardstown oh, ladies? Yeah. Do you remember the Beardstown ladies? Okay, uh, so they uh, were an investing club. Right around when the Motley Fool was like becoming a thing, too. Yeah, so they, they were founded in 1983, and from 1983 to 1994, they had returns of 23.4%. And these are like, la- like ladies. Uh, like, yeah. It's, it's like Beardstown, Illinois. Broads. It's okay. a, right. So they wrote a book, it became a bestseller, and became very famous. Until a couple of journalists figured out that actually what they were doing is they were counting the money they put in to the account every month as returns. And then once the returns were audited, it turns out that they actually earned just 9.1% a year, considerably less than the 14.9% on the S&P 500. Still not bad, but... Yeah, so... Not not that great. Not not that great, right. So... um, you don't want to do that. You don't want to count the money you put in, or if you're retired, the money you're taking out as part of your returns. The magic word you you, you need to Google is time-weighted returns. Okay. That's what you are looking for. And I can give you a couple of full articles to look for. One is computing your investment returns, Redux, and keep track of your returns. Both of those are by Matt Richards. They're actually over a decade old, but they do a great job of explaining how to do this. In those articles, he mentions a spreadsheet that's no longer available, but one of our current analysts, Jim Mueller, 
actually created a spreadsheet on Dropbox, and maybe we could tweet that oh, out. Yeah, yeah. So you can get the spreadsheet and put your numbers in. You, when you put money in, when you take money out, it'll calculate the, calculate the time-weighted returns for you. Oh, nice. So the easy answer is, we'll get it to you. We'll get it to you. And, well, we'll and also, the- ideally, your brokerage account is doing that for you as well, but they don't always do that, so you just have to keep an eye on it. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think the key distinction there is that most brokerage firms allow you to run multiple variants of your performance. And so there's the regular rate of return or the time period return, and then there's the time-weighted return. And, and so you can usually run a report where you run the time-weighted return of your account. So you can just easily see it from within your own account. And it's funny that you mentioned that story because a lot of the times when I was back in the business, people would come to me comparing their 401k returns to the returns that they were getting in our investment portfolio. And the 401k always looked phenomenal. But it was because most 401ks report it including contributions. So everyone always assumes their 401k is doing gangbusters when it often is being reported as including the contributions that you make as part of its total return. Look, it's up $25,000. Of course, I put in $18,000, but hey, that's really the the, the secret to investment success. Just keep putting money in your account. All right, next question comes to us from Lindsay in Arlington, Virginia. Look, someone else just down the road. All right. Thanks for all the personal finance advice via your podcast. I just had a baby, so of course, I'm already thinking about saving for college. However, I'm still confused about the benefits of a 529 plan. My husband and I have approximately 200000 in non-retirement investments as we started following The Motley Fool when we were in our early 20s. Aw, we're in our mid-30s now. Should we start a 529 plan or just keep investing and pull his future college funds out of our investment? We are well on track with our retirement savings and have a 10-month cash emergency fund. Boom. Yeah. Very impressive. Thank you. We, we are most impressed, We are Lindsay. most impressed. I don't even have a 10-month cash reserve. <laughs> well, that's not okay. So, 529 plans are so named after its section in the IRS tax code, 529. They're sponsored by states, often operated by financial services companies. Um, and the benefit is that you put the money in, and it grows tax-free as long as the money is eventually used for qualified higher education expenses, so tuition, room, board, a few other expenses that you can use. And it has to be a qualified university. It can't be, I don't know, some crazy place in the Bahamas, something like that. Um, and one of the other benefits is, since you live in Virginia, and I participate in Virginia's 529 plan as well, is if you the money that you put in can be deducted from the state income tax return as long as you participate in Virginia's plan. But you don't have to participate in your own state's plan. You can go and look for a better plan if your state's plan isn't very good. The best source of information about that is savingforcollege.com. It rates all the plans so you can see whether your state offers a break and whether it's worth staying in your state. Um, so I would say 529s are a good idea. I have it for my kids, but they're not the only things out there. What's your take on 529s? Yeah, I think 529s are a great option. One of the other things that people, I think, get stuck on is what happens if their kid is a bum and they don't go to school <laughs> and they can't use that money. Well, one of the nice things about a 529 is you can kind of continually roll it to additional family members. So if you have multiple kids and the first one's a bum, you know, bummer. But so many, many successful people didn't go to college. That's, well, that's right. Or a self-starter or, or an entrepreneur. Or an entrepreneur. Right. That's a very fair Doesn't point. Doesn't even need the money. Right. It's but like, m- Mom, thanks for the 529, but I already bought my Tesla and I my little startup is doing fine. Thank you. 
point of the story, most kids are bums. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but yeah, so you can roll. So if the first kid very yeah is a tech genius and doesn't go to college, you can give <laughs> yes. it to the second uh, child and they can use it. So so eventually it's pretty easy to use it up if you have multiple kids. You can also transfer it from yourself, actually. I know a couple of folks who have started a 529 for themselves early before they even ever had kids and then transferred it to their child to get a jump start on savings for college. Yep. So, so there's a lot of flexibility in there. Right. One of the drawbacks for some people to a 529 is that you can only invest in mutual funds. Hmm. And for people who really want to save for college and invest in individual stocks and looking for a tax advantage account, there's the Coverdell Education Savings Account. It has a low contribution amount. You can only contribute $2,000 a year, but that's still nice. There are income limits. So if you may have an adjusted gross income of $110,000 if you're single, $220,000 if you're married, you're supposedly not allowed to contribute to it. But all you do then is just give the money to the kid and they can do the account themselves. And in that, not only can you buy just about anything you can normally buy at a brokerage account, the money can also be used for qualified education expenses for private elementary school, secondary school. So it has a little bit more flexibility. It does have to be used up by the time the kid is 30, however. And just a couple additional gotchas. I think Bro's resources, that website is definitely one of the better resources to follow. But um, reciprocity is one thing that exists for a lot of these, especially 529. So if you're in Virginia and you participate in the DC plan, you might still be able to claim that state tax deduction. So, so there's a couple of different areas where you don't have to use your state's 529 if you find a better alternative, as Bro mentioned. And uh, you know, the final thing is you just want to make sure that how you classify your assets, parents versus grandparents versus the child's, is all sort of aligned when you go to file for FAFSA. So utilizing the various buckets that you have had saved makes a material impact on their ability to get education loans, assuming that you haven't fully funded it via the 529 plan. Right. You're looking way down the road. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's important. Yeah. And FAFSA is the form you fill out to determine how much aid you're eligible for. And, and definitely, the, the worst situation is for the kid to own the asset. Yeah. Um, and there's some great things. Uh, calculators out there called EFC calculators, basically expected family contributions that will give you a rough estimate of how much aid you might be eligible for anyhow. Yeah. All right, and we have our final question. Dun, dun. You guys did it. We're there. We're at the home stretch. All right. This comes from Kurt. I currently don't own any stocks directly, only those in my 401k, which is managed by the firm my company uses to administer our plan. One of your recent podcasts got me interested in buying some stock of my own, but I don't have a lot of spare money laying around to get started. However, I will be receiving $500 at the end of the year from participating in my company's wellness program. Good for you. I know. Uh. Originally, I thought I would buy a new home theater receiver, but decided maybe I would open a brokerage account and buy some stock instead. So. Is 500 enough money to get started with in buying stocks, or should I just get the receiver and rock the house with Star Wars on the subwoofer? Any advice you can provide would be greatly appreciated. As you all know, I am a big Star Wars fan, so I am very torn by this. Yes, well, as someone who named his firstborn Lucas, I am also <laughs> <laughs> torn about this when you threw the Star Wars Met, part yeah, in there. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, all right. Um, but to answer your question, yes, $500 is enough. We talked on a previous episode about this old fool rule of thumb that you have to keep transaction costs to 2% of your investment. And then when we looked into it, we couldn't really find how the heck we came <laughs> just, up with that. We just pulled the number out it's of It's just air. old fool lore, but it's still a good guideline. I mean, the one thing about investing a smaller amount of money is you don't want to then buy 25 stocks and then have the commissions eat up everything. Um, so there are brokerages out there that will choose 
that will charge you seven bucks, five bucks, some are even free. That's the only concern I would I would have. Otherwise, go ahead and start investing. Yeah, th- this question warms my heart because it, it touches on getting people started. And so, just for reference, there are stocks that exist that are worth more than what you are trying to invest in. Some so so Priceline, for example, is an over one thousand dollar stock. So with your five hundred dollars, you could not buy one share of Priceline. But that doesn't mean that you should not invest that five hundred dollars. You can buy an index fund. Or you can buy, you know, any other company that's worth less than five hundred dollars. What's Disney going for today? Yeah, it's like ninety bucks. <laughs> Owner of, I think. of Star Wars, the Star Wars Enterprise, of course. Yeah, it's like ninety-two bucks or something like that. And so you could buy multiple shares of Disney. So, so it, yes, I think you should invest that money and get started. Uh, one tip: consider something like a Robinhood, which is free trades, right, yeah. so that you don't get eaten up by transaction costs, as Bro said. Um, and yeah, just get started. I think you should, you know, invest in Disney, like you were saying. They own Star Wars now, so go nuts. We own Disney. I, I, should I disclaimer that we own Disney? Sure, go ahead. Yeah. You guys don't own Disney? I do. Yeah, disclaimer. Thank you. I do own Disney. I don't. You don't? No. I guess you don't really love Star Wars as much as <laughs> I guess much not. as you were sounding like you did. But you know, it's funny. In our last episode or two episodes ago, we talked about giving stocks for Christmas. Yep. And saying giving love it. Giving the stock and the product that it makes, and I'm and I've been thinking, and I've proposed this to my wife tonight actually, of doing it the opposite way, looking at what we bought for the kids, oh. and then saying which of those have stocks that we think are decent, and then throw the shares on top of it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, given that I know I'm getting Star Wars related stuff for Christmas, maybe I'll get some Disney too. Who knows? <laughs> It always fits, man. It's always the right size. It looks good on you, you know. <laughs> All right, Sean, thank you for joining us today. It's always you guys managed to always stay on fun. the rails. For the most part. <laughs> you can't. Yeah, it's all audio. There's no You don't know what's going on under the table. <laughs> You too. All right. I also want to thank Heather and Anne for sitting in for Rick, who is homesick today. Sorry, Rick. Aww. Hi, Rick. Also, thanks to Vicky, who sent a postcard of the Mona Lisa from Paris. Wow. I know. They're still coming in. Our email is answers at fool.com. Drop us a line. Ask us a question. We do read every single one. And just like with the nine questions we answered today, we try to answer as many of them as we possibly can. Fun fact for the audience, Rick is a fantastic spike ball player. I just oh, that's right. That you guys there. are part of the Spike I don't Ball know if Club. Yeah, the audience, if you Google or YouTube Spike Ball, just envision Rick, who provides <laughs> this show to you, being standout player with, a, with his long flowing locks. Oh, it's a beautiful thing to watch. Breaking into song every now and then and playing his guitar and I don't know. He's got the he serves and his whole body gets in. He's got like a full tennis serve. It's. You should wow. come see it sometime. <laughs> we'll, bring, we'll bring popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Uh, yeah. So that's the show. Also, if you don't have a question to send us, you can also send us uh, what we requested last week, which was some of your favorite go-to places for holiday shopping, and also some of your holiday traditions, because Bro would like to steal some of your holiday traditions. I just love hearing what people do. I just It just warms my chestnuts or something. <laughs> See, you there, had to get that yeah. in, didn't you? Yay. I don't know why that's funny. I don't. <laughs> All right. So, for Robert Brokamp and Sean Gates, I'm Alison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.